0: This morning we come to our second ministry commitment. We're moving through our ten ministry commitments, just outlining and rehearsing our philosophy of ministry, what it is that we must be about and why we do what we do. And the second is what David already referenced on the cover of your bulletin this morning. We are committed to God-centered worship. The blurb that goes underneath of that in the ten ministry commitments says, Believers gather to worship and to be equipped and then spread out to evangelize. Church services, therefore, must be primarily for the glory and pleasure of God, which results in the progressive maturing of His people. So we benefit as we focus our attention in corporate worship and gathered worship on God exclusively. Um, God-centered worship, in the, in the thought of it, if you just take it at its uh, face value, seems a little bit redundant um, We're Christians. We've gathered to worship. It would seem unnecessary to put the word God-centered, the words God-centered, before worship. But in the culture in which we live, in the time in which we live, it is important to delineate or to set aside that we are committed to a God-centered worship as opposed to a man-centered worship. And I just want to take a minute to try to unpack this a little bit. This is an issue of emphasis really in the worship services at Grace Church. Um, The question is, is the church gathered for worship primarily focused on the people who are attending, um, their attitude, their comfort, um, their pleasure, their reception, their judgment of what's happening? Is that the, the primary emphasis of gathering together or is it upon God's Delight, his happiness, his acceptance, his approval, and his response to what we've done in worship together. Um, it's no small issue to talk about worship, especially in the Christian, kind of American Christian culture, subculture, because worship is such a buzzword, it, it almost is devoid of meaning because it's so familiar to us as uh, Christian people. Maybe you think worship is the time when we sing together. Or worship is what we do before we study the Bible. Maybe worship is just a meeting together. Or it's even a style of music uh, on your iPod. There's worship music. And that's a genre of music. Maybe it's a mystical experience. So you rarely worship, but when you do, you know it. Because you have goosebumps or chicken skin, whatever you call that. And the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Maybe it's something completely different than praising God. Maybe these these bad statements or unhelpful statements are familiar to you. You've heard them or you're, you're around them. Something like this, Bob Coughlin gives these to us at his blog, Worship Matters. By the third song, I was really worshiping. What exactly were you doing in the first two songs? You were still, biblically, you were still worshiping. It's just who and how you are worshiping that's in question. Or worship gets me to a place where I I don't have to think about anything. And actually, biblically, worship is based upon and fueled by and generated in thoughts of truth. Content is at the back of worship. Or maybe the question, will there be worship at the service today? Um, Yes, there will be. It will be, the question really should be, how many will worship? How will we worship? How effective will we be in worship? With only 20 minutes left, we really don't have time to worship. Fred is doing the worship this morning. Or perhaps Mark is doing the worship this morning. Really. And what exactly are we doing if Mark is doing the worshiping? As the one who is serving us in leadership or perhaps we say about someone, that person is a real worshiper. Usually what we mean by that is they're very expressive in the way that they worship. But if they are the real worshipers, then what is the essence of worship? So Christian worship must be defined. It has to be clarified. We have to unify around a term, and that term has to be defined by something outside of us. So The word worship is a neutral term biblically. Um, Worship in the Bible is simply uh, ascribing worth to something, saying or responding to the worthiness of something. That's where the concept of worship comes from. And in the Bible, that's a neutral concept. There are those who worship idols. There are those who worship themselves. There are those who worship plants and animals and creation. There are those who worship Yahweh God. There are those who worship Yahweh God in their own making. You remember a calf that was made, a golden calf. That golden calf was not the God golden calf. It was to be a representative in their own making of Yahweh, something to look at while they worshiped. So worship is a neutral concept, and it is the object that defines it. Does that make sense? Neutral in the sense of what's connected to the worship, where the worship goes is what defines the worship. So for our purposes this morning, our question is, what is Christian worship? What is biblical worship? What is godly worship? And let me lean on a couple of, or several men who are much my senior and wiser. Warren Wearsby says, Worship is the believer's response of all that they are. Mind, emotions, will, and body to what God is and says and does. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotion, will, and body, to what God is and says and does. Bob Coughlin says, Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to His self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to His self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ, in our minds, affections, and wills, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And John MacArthur in his little book, True Worship, says, Worship is honor paid to a superior being. It means to give homage, honor, reverence, respect, adoration, praise, or glory to a superior being. Genuine Christian worship then is giving to God what he demands because of who he is and what he has accomplished on behalf of his worshipers. You catch that? Christian worship, Grace Church's worship, when we say we're committed to God-centered worship, worship is giving to God what he demands because of who he is and what he has accomplished on behalf of us as worshipers on our behalf. Worship is not getting something, but giving everything to the one great cause for which we exist, the glory of God. This is important for us to consider as a church family. Because as an an essential quality to our commitments in ministry. This has everything to do with the way we focus our attention, what we anticipate, what we expect from each of our worship gatherings, services, opportunities to serve God in worship. That's why we call it a service. Grace Church is committed to God centered worship because it is for that worship that we were created and redeemed and gathered here in this place. It's why we're here. Not as in why we're here at these moments right now, though that is true as well, but why we're here generally. We were created to worship. God made us to exalt in His glory. Sin ruins that worship. It corrupts it. It twists it. It cuts off access to God and a clear sight line to God. We are blinded. We're dead. We're rebellious. Twisting our created purpose to our own destruction. Romans chapter one verses eighteen and following communicate to us. So then, the big idea this morning, the the central theme, if you will, for this morning is that true worship or Christian worship of God is always God centered. True worship is always God centered. Therefore, when we when we do or think or have attitudes within the realm of what we would say is worship. When we are worshiping, but God is not at the center, we are giving false worship. That's a serious consideration for us this morning. Is it valid, biblically, to say that worship of God is and must be God-centered? Is that the expectation of your Bible? And that's ultimately why this topic of God-centered worship flows out of the last two weeks of study. If God's authoritative word stands over us as authority, as heavenly words communicated to us to show us us and to show us God and to show us his purposes, then we must respond with this consideration. If the Bible calls us to worship God, we must Worship God. And there is a text that I want to draw your attention to this morning, and we're going to focus primarily on one place, and we'll move around our Bibles to uh, round out this topic this morning as we consider God centered worship. So take your New Testaments and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read verses 28 and 29, and then we'll give our attention to unpacking these verses and consider how they inform us about our worship as we gather together as a people. Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read just the final two verses of the chapter, verse number 28 and verse number 29. The anonymous author of Hebrews says to us, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, in verse number 28, Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, help us now as we study these verses and consider this critical commitment as a church family to placing you at the center of, of our times of worship together. Surely it is is first critical that you are at the center of our existence as individuals. But you have not redeemed us. You have not called us out. You have not adopted us as sons and daughters to live as individuals. You've called us to be plural. To live with the local believers in the local church. To be a part of the spread of your kingdom Message the gospel of Jesus Christ within our local region to be equipped and to be ministered to and to minister within, for the sake of your name, our local assembly. And so we ask that you would help us to consider carefully our own lives and the life of our church as a whole as we study these verses this morning. We recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit, we cannot understand, we will not understand what you intend for us to grasp from these verses. So we pray that he would quicken us, enlighten us, turn the lights on these texts so that we can see them clearly, convict us where we're sinning, encourage us where there are fruits of his grace in us, and may you be glorified, and may you be central even in our study of God-centered worship, and we will praise you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 is like parachuting into the middle of a forest and then trying to decipher where you are in that forest. Um, We don't know anything about where we are. We don't know what's behind us. We don't know what's coming in front of us. And as much as I would enjoy it, And uh, as much as you perhaps would not enjoy it, um, we can't take the time to walk from Hebrews 1 to Hebrews 12 and verse 28. But we can set up a little bit of the context in Hebrews 12 that will open us up to what is the Spirit's intention for our understanding in verse 28 and 29. There's a key word at the front door of verse 28 that helps us in our context. It's therefore, right? And we ought to always ask Why is that therefore positioned in its place? Because therefores in your New Testament, in your Bible, draw you backwards. They run backwards to show you some some declaration that's been made. The therefore then is the implication that comes from that declaration. So there's some truth before verse 28 that verse 28 is flowing from. So it's a good question. Why do we have a therefore in verse 28? Well, if we go backwards to verse 18, we find the theme that the author of Hebrews is presenting to the Jewish first readers of this letter. Um, Basically, in verse number 18 down through verse number 24, the author is trying to make it clear that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are very distinct. Um, he, He breaks it into mountains, basically, Sinai and Zion. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant being with Moses at Sinai, when the cloud and the smoke and God reveals and talks to His people through Moses' communication for Him. And the New Covenant, which He describes as being mediated by Jesus Himself. One is shakable. One is transient. One is temporary and moving. And one is stable, unmoving, unshakable, and eternal. One is very temporal in the sense of it's out in the middle of nowhere around a mountain. And one is, is very eternal in the sense of it's from a heavenly origin. That's, that's the argument that he's making in verse 18 down through verse number 24. In fact, he describes it in verse 22. But you, in contrast to the old covenant, but you have come to Mount Zion, enter the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he says, you've come to the new covenant. And obviously, the original readers of Hebrews and us this morning as we read this, we are aware that we are not in a heavenly city as much as... The Kingsburg locals might think otherwise. This is not the heavenly Jerusalem. This is not the Zion. This is not the place where we see Jesus face to face. We are not in the presence of the firstborn, that is those who have already died, who are made righteous in standing before God. We're not here yet. So there's a part of this that is very much anticipating something in the future. A new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem that John talks about in his revelation at the end of our New Testament. But yet, the author of Hebrews is also drawing upon the reality that this does have a present implication upon these people. They are in the New Covenant, they are in the Kingdom, and they are waiting for the culmination of the New Covenant and the New Kingdom. So, what was transient in the Old Covenant, what was very temporal and very movable, if you will, at Sinai, at Zion, is unshakable. The mediator is none other than Jesus himself. God is present, the judge of all. And his righteous ones who have been made perfect by him through his son are in his presence. This is, this is our citizenship. This, this draws my mind back to our studies in the first part of Matthew. We have a heavenly citizenship. And the author of Hebrews is trying to build that argument for the purpose of warning these readers. Now, we've studied Hebrews before. I'm sure many of you have studied it longer than I've been alive, perhaps. So you know that a lot of of Hebrews is, is taken up in warning the readers about turning away from the gospel of Christ. That's exactly what the author has in mind at the end of chapter 12. So in verse 25, the author says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't reject this citizenship. Don't walk away from this eternal new covenant that is being presented to you. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that is Moses, that is the nation of Israel rejecting Moses and being punished for it, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also, the heavens. So, while the voice of God shook the earth in his fury against the disobedience of his people in the old covenant, the heavens and the earth will be done away in his anger at the conclusion of this age and the awakening and the culmination of the new covenant in the arrival of the kingdom in its fullness. So, verse 27, this phrase. Yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, this culmination, this fury from God will do away once and for all with a temporal existence and will leave only the eternal existence. With that warning ringing in the, the ears, if you will, of the original hearers of this letter and readers of this letter we come to this comfort and this response for those who are truly a part of the new kingdom. So, the author of Hebrews has said, there's two kingdoms, they're very distinct. One is temporal, one is eternal. One is moving, one is unmoving. And and beware that you do not walk away from the offer of a new covenant in the new kingdom. Because if God was furious with the people of Israel who walked away from Moses as He relayed the temporal kingdom... Imagine what it will be like when you walk away from this new covenant kingdom opportunity. But there are, and with God's grace on our hearts, we know this morning, many of us are a part of this anticipation. We will see this culmination. And so for us, there is this implication. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So on the one hand, there's a warning in relationship to this clear distinction between the Old and the New Covenant. And then there is a commendation. There is a a command, a call, if you will, that is made to those who are truly in the New Kingdom, Christ's people. So, those who are reading this morning as well as nearly 2,000 years ago, must not refuse the word coming from heaven. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. They must not refuse this new covenant offer, but rather those who have received it should worship God with acceptable worship. That is how we come to the conclusion that true worship is found here in Hebrews 12 and throughout our Bibles as always being god centered worship. And there are three truths in these two verses that make that painfully obvious. And these are not complex. But I trust they'll be clear and helpful as the Spirit applies them to our hearts. Number one, God is the cause of our worship. God is the cause of our worship. How is it that we should come to understand God-centered worship? What are the elements or the truths that, that, that are rotating within this concept of God-centered worship. Well, number one, God is the cause of our worship. And we find this in the very first part of verse number, 30, or verse number 28, rather. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. You see, the the catalyst here, the fuel, if you will, for the worship of God's people is their recognition, their awareness of what God has given to them, what God has done on their behalf. Our worship together, if it is to be God-centered, it will be because we, as the body of Christ, are mindful, reminded, aware of what we have received from God. Now, this is not a past tense idea. In fact, I just stated it as past tense, which is, is unhelpful for our understanding because the ESV has translated this in a very helpful way. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The Greek language has a way of, of giving us some, uh, a verb that keeps on going. The action just keeps extending itself. So the idea is it has a past reality, but it's a present reality. Ongoing situation. So, in light of the new covenant stability, the unshakable nature of the new covenant, believers are to be aware of the present receiving that they are given from God. And the receiving is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This citizenship is not a past tense. I was made a citizen, but I am a citizen. Of the eternal kingdom. I am a citizen of the eternal heavenly Jerusalem. I will be because I am. And I am because I was made a citizen of this kingdom. This is sovereign grace. We are already a part of this kingdom, and yet we have not yet received and experienced the culmination of this kingdom. But our worship, if it is to be God-centered, is fueled by gratitude because of our awareness of what God has done. Go back with me to the Psalms again. We've already been there this morning. Let's go to Psalm number 95. 95th Psalm. This is, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, it's back there in the middle of your Bible. If you turn just in the middle, you probably come to Isaiah or Jeremiah. Go left and you'll find the Psalms. It's a songbook of the nation of Israel they would sing these songs on different occasions and in the 95th psalm we find this theme running parallel with what the author of Hebrews is saying psalm number 95 and verse number 6 oh come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before yahweh our maker you say there's there's nothing significant about reading this this sounds all very Christian ease, like. This is very familiar, but don't miss what's here. The psalmist draws attention to what God has done as the basis of the worship of God's people. God's people worship God because they recognize who He is and what He's accomplished on their behalf. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our Maker, the one who has created us turn just a page or two over to the 99th psalm and in the 99th psalm we find a similar theme verse 9 exalt the lord our god and worship at his holy mountain why for the lord our god is holy he is our maker he is holy we worship him for who he is as revealed by himself And what He has accomplished. And you don't need to turn there, but if you were to turn back to Hebrews and then go just a little further into 1 Peter, I'll read it for you. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9, we find these words. But you, Peter says to the Asian believers, the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness Into his marvelous light. So, if we needed a purpose driven life, if we needed a purpose statement, here is a biblical purpose statement. We have been set apart with all of these descriptive terms a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people so that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. Our worship is the natural response of what God has done in our lives. Therefore, back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, we recognize that God is the cause of our worship. This is different, brothers and sisters, than worshiping God to get Him to do something for us. This is a clear distinction. It is what God has already done, what He is presently doing, what He will in the future do that initiates, that fuels our worship of our great God. We do not worship so that he sees us and deals favorably with us. We do not cut ourselves and dance around like the priest of old who worshiped a false god. We worship a god who has and continues to give us citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This gratitude is founded upon the recognition that our placement in the unshakable kingdom is granted to us by God himself. We received it and we receive it from our sovereign God. And the only natural response is our grateful worship. So, worship is not the response of the heart to a mood, a feeling. It's not the response of the heart to a music style or an ambiance. It is not a response of the heart to life circumstances dictating how we respond. It's not even the result of someone else's leadership toward worship. Worship is initiated by truth coming to bear upon our minds and grabbing our hearts and Motivating our wills. Truth. God is the cause of our worship. Every time there is truth about who God is and what he's accomplished on behalf of sinners, there should be worship. So as a commitment to God-centered worship as a church family, we ought to be looking for the truth when we worship together. And our hearts ought to be responding to that truth in spite of not apart from, but in spite of our surroundings, our circumstance, style, or preference. So there is amazing freedom in in the expressions of worship toward God. But they are all drawn back to this one truth. God is the cause. He's the He's the initiator. He's the instigator of worship by us, His people. True worship of God is always God-centered. It begins with knowing something about God. And in verse 28, it is the reception, the gospel reception of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A grateful heart. Now, there's a... There's a structure in verse 28. If you go back to Hebrews 12, 28, there's a structure there and flowing out of that grateful heart is the second phrase. So they look parallel. They look like two of the same phrases. In fact, in my translation or my my copy of the translation, the, the lines are lined up so that the words go right together. Let us, let us. But the second flows from the first. So this grateful heart that recognizes what God has done responds then with this second phrase. And let us offer to God Acceptable worship. So, first of all, God is the cause of our worship. Number two, God is the object of our worship. If you want a, a more modern word in our entertainment saturated culture, He's the audience of our worship. He's the object. He's the audience. He's the one who's receiving what we are giving. Worship is us giving to Him what is rightfully His, our praise, our adoration, our wonder, our awe. It is to God that we offer acceptable worship. Now this word worship, maybe you have a different translation and it's translated service. That's because this word shares with it the idea of both worship and activity, service. Concepts are close. I believe the SV's done a good job Looking at the context, it made, made the best choice that could be made. In the ESV, 11 out of 21 times it goes with worship. 10 out of 21 times it goes with serve. Here I think it's right because of the reverence, awe, and the consuming fire that are attached to the end of this concept of worship. This worship flows from gratitude. It's subsequent to doctrine. Truth ignites Worship. Fascinatingly enough, in the church today, in the broad evangelical church, if you want to, that's a dangerous category to go into. It is common within some churches, within evangelicalism in our country, there we'll narrow it down, caveat it a little bit, nuance it. It is common to downplay doctrine for the sake of worship. We don't want to emphasize doctrine, we want to emphasize worship. But what, what we run into as the massive problem with our, with our Bible is that worship is fueled by doctrine. So truth is at the very heart of worship. God is and always must be the object of our worship. Man-centered worship is not Christian worship. Man-centered worship waters down the word to tickle the ears of the listeners. It is culturally sensitive. It is concerned about the reception of the people hearing it more than of its faithfulness to the author who is listening in as well. Man-centered worship in singing sings songs that are primarily emphasizing our situation. How important we are. How blessed we are. How good we've got it. How much God is all about us. Rather than focusing our attention on who He is, how great He is, how unworthy we are to know His great character. Man-centered prayer is entirely supplication. Without adoration, without confession, without recognition of who we're speaking to. Man-centered prayer is what we've often called genie-in-the-bottle prayer. It is a formula to try to get what I want. And James says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss to consume your own desires. Man centered fellowship does not bring the truth to bear on one another's lives, it merely brings one another's lives to bear on one another's lives. Small talk is not fellowship. But worship can take place when two Christians are talking to each other. If in fact God is at the center and He's the object of their fellowship. Service is often man-centered. But if it is God-centered, if He is the cause and His person and character and His work through His Son are the basis of service, not out of debt payment, but out of overwhelming gratitude and joy in his glory, service is an opportunity for God-centered worship. So our worship as a family, when we come together as a church, must be understood as having only one audience member. And maybe this is a, a mind shift that needs to happen for some of us this morning. If you've thought of worship or even this time of worship right now, perhaps even Presently, thinking of there's only one person who's performing right now. And then there's however many other people in the room who are watching the performance and who are evaluating the performance. I try not to think about this thought very often. And I'm the one who's actually doing the worship in the Word this morning, and you are merely the audience who's receiving it. We're misunderstanding what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is is the one who superintended this whole circumstance. And we are all on the stage. And there's only one person in the audience. He's the eternal God of heaven who made us, who saved us, who's called us out for himself, and who deserves all the glory. So your reception of the word is as much on display before God as my deliverance of the word Our dependence upon the Holy Spirit as we study the Word, no matter which side of the pulpit we're on, is a part of offering our worship, declaring with our minds and our attitudes and our attentiveness the worthiness of God who is speaking through His Word. We should be quick to ask ourselves at lunch what did God get out of our time today? Perhaps, like me, you've said something along the lines of, I just don't get a lot out of that. I don't go there anymore because I just don't get anything. Let's reverse the question because we're committed to God-centered worship. Let's be committed that when we come in here together, when we gather together for worship, we want to be concerned about what God is getting from us as a people. What did he get during our singing time? Did he receive hearts that were overwhelmed with who he was, freshly awakened to the gospel good news, overcome with gratitude for this reception into a kingdom that's unshakable? Or did he receive coldness, indifference, going through the motions? Did he receive coldness, indifference, going through the motions that then struggled and pursued and begged Him for help to make Him worthy in their hearts and minds? Did He find His people who were struggling, actually struggling and leaning upon His grace? Because if He did, He found acceptable worship from us. What did God get out of our time today? What is He getting right now? Because God is the object of our worship. He's the cause, and it is to Him that we offer acceptable worship when we gather together. Thirdly, God is the cause, He's the object, and then thirdly, God is the judge of our worship. God is the judge of our worship. Those last two words in that middle phrase, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. There is, brothers and sisters, unacceptable worship. That's a terrifying thought if we believe verse 29 is true. So it is appropriate for us to consider God as the judge, the evaluator of our worship. There are clear lines of biblical evidence of what acceptable worship looks like or contains. And I'm just going to give these to you as bullet points. You can jot them down if you're taking notes. Consider them. I'll give you a passage with each one to help bring God's Word to validate these claims. Number one, acceptable worship comes to God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is through Jesus in the Spirit. John 4, verses 22 through 26 the time is coming, and now is, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, when we will worship in spirit and in truth. No longer will be there there'll be a temple, a physical building, where, where God's glory will rest in the Holy of Holies, and only the mediating human priest will go in there to provide atonement. But there will be a day when spirit and truth will be the basis of worship. And she says to him, I know the Messiah is going to come. She understood theologically what he was saying. I know the Messiah is coming. Jesus says in John 4, I'm the one. That's me. You're looking at him. I am the essence of worship. It is through Jesus in the power of the Spirit of God. None who are separated from the Spirit of God, who do not bear his indwelling presence, none who are in such a condition can worship God. Number two, acceptable worship encompasses all of our lives. Let me, let me make that more personal. It encompasses all of your life. I don't mean all of our lives as in all of us, though it does. It encompasses all of my life. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say that the, the sacrifice of my life for God is, is the reasonable service or the spiritual worship of my life. There is no compartment of your existence, brothers and sisters, that is not an opportunity for acceptable worship or unacceptable worship to be delivered to God. Now this morning, for our purposes, we're certainly thinking about our gathered worship, but we're about to scatter. We're minutes away from walking out of the door, spending some time with each other, and then leaving. And perhaps we won't see each other again until next Lord's Day at the beginning of a week when we come back in this room. But understand that your worship will not end and the acceptable nature of it will not cease to be judged by the audience. Because worship that is acceptable encompasses all of life. There is no set time for it. There are just various expressions of it. Peter O'Brien in his wonderful commentary on Hebrews chapter 12 says, to worship or serve God acceptably means that believers regard every aspect of their lives as an expression of their devotion to Him. Christian worship is not limited to prayer and praise in the congregational context. Let me me do that on the negative side. Let me bring that over to a negative concept. Acceptable worship is never removed from any component of our lives. There's no component of our lives that is free from the obligation to worship as God's people. So we tend to be compartmentalized in our view of our lives, right? Um... We'll say things like, I just really need some, some me time, I need some time away, or that's my work time, or that's my family time, or that's my church time, or that's my this time, or that time, or this time, or that time. And those are helpful ways to divide out our lives for organizational things. I, I get all that. That's, that's totally reasonable. Um, in fact, I could, I could use some more organization in my life, and maybe that'll help. But there's one theme that ought to run through every single compartment of how you've organized or think about your life, and it is worship. When you are on the job, you are providing acceptable or unacceptable worship. When you are in the, the home, in your family, worship. When you are with your friends, in leisure, worship. When you're receiving entertainment, worship. See, this, this infiltrates, this permeates every part of our existence. Acceptable worship encompasses all of life. Number three, acceptable worship is concerned... Only with God. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. You'll remember these from our study way back when in Matthew 6. He goes through prayer, fasting, giving, all acts of worship in the Jewish system, and he attacks the external motivation of those activities. Pray in secret, give in secret, fast in secret. Why? Because Acceptable worship is not concerned first with what others see of me worshiping. Isn't this a deadly trap? I've struggled so much of my Christian life with this trap. Right about the moment that I'm about to be free in worship, I'm being consumed by a thought of God's goodness toward me. I'm being consumed by doctrinal truth. I'm thinking about something that's true about God, and it's awakening my heart to worship. Right at the brink of, of exploding into... Genuine worship and spirit and truth. In races, a little tiny thought: What are they going to think about? Well, who's who's looking at me? What do I look like right now? What are they wearing? What is going on with that person or with this person? And what does that person think about me in this situation? God-centered worship, acceptable worship, if God is the judge, is concerned with God exclusively. And this is something we have to battle for. We need to lean upon His grace and His Spirit to help us to set aside what is so, so readily there. The distractions from worship. Don't forget the importance of God as the judge of our worship. Notice the descriptive words that are used back in verse number 28. The accompanying attributes of acceptable worship are reverence and awe. Uh, reverence and awe are synonyms in some ways. They kind of they kind of bump into each other. They mean very similar things. Uh, Reverent fear, if you will. The word awe is so overused. Um, awesome, awesome is something that gives awe. Um, it can be a cheeseburger. It can be you know the Grand Canyon. Awesome goes the whole spectrum. Um, A basketball shot, that's an awesome shot. Really? Did it inspire awe in you? Here we're called to the highest awe, that is the view and the knowledge of God Himself, with reverence, that is sobriety, seriousness in the presence of our Creator. So much of worship, with our culture is just flippant and feel good. It's relaxed, it's casual, it's not aware of its surroundings, it's certainly not aware of its audience. Have you ever been in a situation where the person who is in front was unaware of their audience? It's a devastating thing to watch. If you're like me, you have surrogate nervousness for them. Hello, we're out here. Do you know what you're doing? So much of worship is unaware of the audience and it leads to a lack of reverence and awe. Brothers and sisters, when we come together as a people, we are coming together before God. Yahweh, who is our creator, who is our sustainer, whose son is our substitute righteousness, who has provided forgiveness for us, who has made us from enemies to children, who has the power to send our souls to an eternal hell, but whose love has saved us. We don't come into His presence flippantly. We just think we're in His presence flippantly. You can't find anyone in your Bible who has been in the presence of God who has responded flippantly. And yet we say we're in the presence of God on a consistent basis without any effect. Burning bush. Mount Sinai. John's revelation in the presence of God. The transfiguration with the disciples. The glory of God breeds reverence and awe in us. Say, why is that? That That sounds like a more of a funeral than it does a celebration it's not sadness it's not a fear that that shudders and quakes and hides under the chair it's an awe and wonder because we recognize that verse 29 is true our God is a consuming fire and but for his grace through his son we would be the recipients of that fire of his judgment don't forget about the old testament examples (laughs) Let me give these to you because these examples are are so important for us. Maybe you remember these names um, from your reading even this year. Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. They come and on their own terms, they try to bring worship to God. And they die. God kills them. Or Korah, Datham, Abiram, and On, who also brought their own arrogant, rebellious worship. You remember these men. They rebelled against Moses and Aaron. Moses says, okay, if you don't think we're of God, show up tomorrow and bring your censors for worship. We'll see who's God's people. 250 people were swallowed by the earth as they offered false worship. King Uzziah we remember him mostly from Isaiah chapter 6 because in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah was in the temple receiving the vision of the Lord. But King Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26 received leprosy for arrogantly assuming his place in worship. Our God is the judge of our worship and were it not for Christ who is our righteousness and who stands before us, we would receive nothing but His consuming fire. Reverent fear before God's holiness and grandeur is the only acceptable response to His attributes. Okay? So, therefore... Because you're in an unshakable kingdom mediated by Jesus Christ, therefore, let us be grateful. Let it be known of us that we're grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that gratitude ought to be evident because we worship. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How evident has it been, even this morning as we've worshipped together, that you are grateful for God's grace toward you. So what do we do with this? Let me give you just a couple implications, then we're going to sing one final stanza of a hymn, and we'll go home. At Grace Church, when we gather to worship, implication number one, we must have God as our cause, object, and judge of all that takes place. So the standard and the reason for these ten ministry commitments which make up kind of a skeleton for our life as a church. They're the framework, they're the philosophy of ministry. The reason for them, one of the reasons for them is accountability. We are committed. That is, your leadership is committed. And we as a church family agree to be committed to God-centered worship. Therefore, this ought to be the expectation for us when we come together. And when it is not taking place, we ought to be concerned Implication number two, as Grace Church, people, the church's people, as Grace Church, we must recognize worship as our calling as redeemed sinners. This is our our natural responsibility. The New Jersey came with a new job. When the heart was made new, there was a new purpose. God redeemed you so that you would tell of His excellencies that you would worship. John Piper is is quoted as saying evangelism exists because worship doesn't. What does it mean when someone is saved? It means another worshiper has been added to the throne of Jesus Christ for the glory of the Father. Our lives are to reflect in every aspect the transformation of our heart that produces worship. So are there compartments of your life where it would be unknowable that you're a worshiper of God? Is there anything about your life that if, 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 if your claim to Christ was stripped away, nothing would change? Because as Grace Church, as, as a part of Christ Church, universal, we must recognize this is our calling to be worshipers. When we gather and when we scatter, we are worshipers of God. This is our gospel backing to the good news message that we declare. Often today, there's the misunderstanding of lifestyle evangelism. That by living with godly standards, with godly activities, with godly attitudes, people will just naturally ask us for the gospel. The New Testament knows nothing of that. It tells us to go spread a message, to speak a message. But we speak a message with worship as the backdrop of that message. The validity of of the message of Jesus Christ transforming sinners, rescuing them from their sin, providing righteousness, is found in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment, and even our gathered worship as a church family. So two questions for application thoughts, for your meditation and for mine after we leave here. In what aspects of my life am I prone to consider worship as an intruder? Are there areas and what are they in my life where I think of worship in that area of my life and it almost makes me laugh because they're so not connected? That's dangerous. That's a dangerous compartmentalization of your life. Worship is to be the thread that runs through all of our existence and then marks our times when we gather together. Second question, in what ways might I better prepare for, share in, and be blessed by the worship services of grace. Listen, in giving worship to God, we are blessed. I and mean, We are blessed. It is better to give than to receive, and in giving, we receive. God blesses us. And in our worship together, as our statement says, in our commitment, we mature in Christ. He ministers to us. The Spirit is with us and helping us and guiding us in the truth. And all of those blessings are taking place when we are giving ourselves to God in collected worship. So how might I better prepare for share in and receive the blessing of God-centered worship? Those are those are just a few and there are there are several thoughts that no doubt you have as implications that flow from this commitment. It's a huge undertaking to try to wrap this all into one thought, but we are committed to God-centered worship, and true worship of God is always God-centered. Father, we desire to be God-centered. We are thankful for the ways in which you have worked in us to produce God-centered desires in us. We fail in this as individuals and as a church family. And so even as we close our time of worship, we set our hearts again in dependence upon you For our God centeredness. Even as we talk to you now, our minds are tempted to run off to other things, to not genuinely interact with you as the audience. You are the cause. Your grace toward us through your Son is the cause of our existence in your kingdom, and it is the catalyst for our worship. You are the object. You alone are worthy of worship. There is none other like you. There is no higher being beyond you. You alone are the object of worship. All other objects are false gods. And you, we confess, are the judge. And we fall upon Christ, who is our righteousness, who cloaks us in Himself. And we lean upon His cross that is wiped away the sin debt of our lives, and we bring now in gratitude and awe and reverence to you, worship. Receive our gift of our gratitude and our affections and our obedience in service. As acceptable worship, we pray in Christ. Amen.